We start this week's podcast with some breaking news from the US Congress, where it seems, Dominic, that we've been given a little shout out by none other than Mark Zuckerberg. Let's play the tape. I think if it's the right regulation, then yes. You think the Europeans have it right? Uh, I think that they get things right. Have you ever submitted? (laughs) That's true. So thank you to Chuck Schumer for asking that very important question in the two days of interviewing. I mean, we were really flattered. We didn't know Chuck and Mark were fans. I kind of feel like publicity from Mark Zuckerberg is like the worst publicity that you could have right now. But they do say that all publicity is good publicity. So thanks a lot, Mark. Much appreciated. Um, we should probably clarify that he wasn't actually talking about this show when he said that the Europeans get things right. He was talking about European regulation of the internet, but we mustn't let the truth Get in the way of things. That's ironic, isn't it? As Mark said, this is The Europeans. It is a podcast hosted by me, Katie Lee, a journalist in Paris. And me, Dominic Kramer, an opera singer in Amsterdam. I nearly said Paris there. Well, you are going to be in Paris next week. It's very exciting. We might even record some stuff together. Watch out, Paris. I'm coming for you. Yeah, everyone's already forewarned. Don't worry about it. How's Amsterdam looking this week? Uh, Amsterdam is looking fine, um, although I'm a bit worried that my neighbours might be reporting me to the police because I'm currently learning uh, contemporary German opera with which the libretto is mainly Nazi propaganda. And it's very contemporary, so I'm literally running around the house shouting Nazi propaganda, interspersed with bits of letters from Holocaust survivors. So I'm balancing it out, but I think it's not great for the neighbours. My weekend hasn't had any Nazi propaganda in it. Um, It's been quite boring, really. The sun finally came out in Paris, which is wonderful because it feels like this horrible, filthy winter is finally going to end and it fills me with hope. But I broke my bike and it's severely limiting my ability to enjoy said sunshine. Has the mechanic come back from holiday yet? No. I told Dominic this already, but I physically carried this broken bike to the nearest bike shop. Only to be told, oui, madame, we can certainly fix your bike in two weeks' time when the mechanic comes back from holiday. Uh, It was a crap bike anyway, but now it seems like it's really died to death. Sounds like it's a pretty crap bike shop as well. So (laughs) maybe you need to find a new place to frequent. I mean, maybe it will rise from the dead. I'm looking at it right now and it's looking back at me very hostilely. Yeah, well, um, we are looking back at Europe this week. Uh, That was an awkward segue. First, we'll be speaking to Zelka Chaki about the Hungarian parliamentary elections that took place last week. Zelka is a senior researcher on Central Europe for Freedom House. They this week published their yearly report looking into the state of democracy in Central Europe with some pretty alarming results. So we'll also be picking her brains about this. I will then head down the road to have a chat and hopefully a beer with Mick de Rehorst, who is a journalist and entrepreneur and one of the co-founders of Are We Europe, a storytelling platform for young Europeans, which is picking up a lot of awards at the moment, which we are hopefully going to pick up next year. (laughs) Sorry, that's a private joke between me and Katie, but uh, we were nominated for the same award that they were nominated for last year, and they've just won loads of awards this year, and we're hoping that we'll get the same ones next year. It both very well for us it does Mick is on a mission to make Europe sexy again which I thoroughly approve of uh, with the help of his beautiful new project we're pretty intrigued to see how he's getting on with it but first you guessed it it's Good Week Bad Week Good Week Bad Week 
my bad week is quite grim. So should I do it first and get it out of the way and then you can cheer us up with your good week? Yeah, let's do that. So it's been a bad week. We're back kind of 10 days, really. For your hometown, Dominic, the city of London, it's been a bunch of data coming out showing a spike in gun crime and knife crime, more than 50 homicides in the British capital this year. And there's been a lot of media reports quoting this idea that London now has a higher murder rate than New York. There's a lot of really complicated questions wrapped up in this. What's the truth behind the numbers? Why has London seen this surge in violent crime? And it's probably more than we're going to be able to talk about in this podcast, but we can have a go at least. Firstly, I just wanted to take a look at this idea that London now has a higher murder rate than New York, which is something that media on both sides of the Atlantic got very excited about. The NRA even weighed in, uh, suggesting that this was proof that gun control doesn't stop kids from killing each other, which is very helpful. Thank you, NRA. You look at the numbers from the beginning of this month, and London did indeed have more suspected murders than New York in February and March. And in March, the numbers were initially reported as being higher in London but actually since then New York has inched back over them it's kind of interesting because we're talking about cities that are about the same size so it's an interesting comparison to make but if you look at the numbers London is still substantially safer than New York like last year overall New York had more than twice as many murders as London about 300 and even with that higher rate I just wanted to stress that both cities are still pretty safe New York has a much lower murder rate than somewhere like Baltimore or St. Louis which is kind of 20 times that rate So that's one thing. There's no need for us to panic and start talking about no-go zones in London or anything like that. There's been a huge amount of debate in Britain about what is behind this, namely a big political row, because the Conservative government in Britain has taken 20,000 police off the streets since 2010. And inevitably, we've seen the opposition Labour Party saying this is why. It's because there's not enough cops on the streets. And again, it's very complicated. Even the government admits that fewer resources have been going into violent crime, and it's definitely a factor. But they also point out that the areas with the biggest police cuts aren't the same ones that have seen the biggest rises in crime. It's much more complicated than that. There's been a lot of focus in the press talking about gangs and how to stop 16-year-olds from killing each other. And on drugs as well. We've had David Lammy, the MP for Tottenham, blaming Eastern European gangs selling drugs. And teenage gangs and rising drug use are both definitely issues, but they're not the only ones. Criminologists say that most of the murders in London and Britain every year are actually domestic violence rather than gangs, despite this focus that we're seeing on that issue right now. To cut a long story short, the truth is very complicated, but you don't need to cancel your trip to London. We will be the first to tell you if that day ever comes. Cheer us up after that miserable story, Dominic. Who's it been a good week for? I will try my best. We are awarding the slot of good week, not to a person, not to a company or even just a city or a country. No, we are awarding it to the whole of Central and Eastern Europe. They sit happily in our good week position because of news from the EU that finally something is going to be done about this dual food situation, which is essentially the disparity in ingredients in some branded food from one side of the continent to the other. Various campaigners and governments have been lobbying for a while now about what they see as unfair treatment of the non-Western side of Europe. There is a mountain of evidence that some multinationals are selling products with the same name, but putting in cheaper or fewer ingredients in the supposedly identical products when they sell them in the central and eastern parts of Europe. So, for example, according to Der Spiegel, a Dr. Ertke Margarita pizza comes with seven slices of mozzarella in Austria and only five in Slovakia. Not only that, but the Austrians get tomato paste 
racist and the Slovakians only get tomato concentrate, which is not fair. It's racist. The idea that companies think they can get away with palming off crappier products to people in Eastern Europe because they're poorer countries. Like, it's really obvious. I feel like I shouldn't even have to say it, but we live in one European Union with the same rules. They should be exactly the same. Yeah, and lots of people agree with you, but some of the companies are crying foul and saying that, oh, we change the ingredients to adapt to local tastes. Uh. Yeah, I don't quite buy that, especially considering that so many of the differences uncovered make the products cheaper and less healthy for Central and Eastern Europe than for Western Europe. Next month, the European Commission will be providing member states with an official methodology to test for these differences. And the culprits will eventually be fined if they don't make things better. This methodology has also promised to take into consideration different national tastes because they don't want like to make everyone start eating the same sausages or cheese. I don't know. <laughs> so you'll be pleased to hear we're not going to suddenly have like totally generic food across the continent. But it's really good news for lots of people in these countries who have been complaining and hopefully things will get better. Yay! So that was Good Week. And let's stay in Central Europe to see whether Hungary has had a good week too, which I think maybe they haven't, according to our next guest, Jelka. Yes, indeed. Viktor Orban has won re-election in Hungary, and it is fair to say that it is rattling people in Western Europe, at least. He won after a very xenophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim campaign. He describes himself as a defender of Christian Europe. And the press in Western Europe has been full of these headlines this week about this worryingly autocratic leader and what he plans to do next in Hungary. It's quite hard to get your head around all of this, especially if you're not an expert on Hungarian politics. Luckily, we have someone on the line who is. Jaeger is a senior researcher on Central Europe at the think tank Freedom House and the co-host of an excellent podcast about Central Europe called In Between Europe. And she is on the line from Brussels, where she has decamped from Budapest to launch a new report. Here in Western Europe, Viktor Orban is depicted as this worryingly autocratic, extremely xenophobic leader. For people that don't know much about Hungarian politics, can you explain a little bit about what his appeal is for the many, many Hungarians who voted for him and his Fidesz party? His biggest appeal is that what he's saying is, in a sense, a positive message, that Hungarians can be proud of what they are, that we Hungarians are what we want to be and, and we can be very proud of that. And the second thing that's very important about his appeal is that he has something to offer to current problems. What he offers, of course, many say is not a real solution, but he's offering stability. He's offering a kind of security to his voters. And that's very powerful right now. When you look at opposition politicians or left-wing politicians before the current Fidesz government, so before 2010, they did not really have much to offer in terms of positive messaging. Uh, what they offered was mostly a kind of catching up to the West. It was mostly a kind of, you know, we're okay right now, but but we have to be over there and we have to do much more than what we do right now. And Orban at the same time says that you're fine as you are. But of course, there is a whole other side of this argument and that is that, that he has created this kind of parallel reality in Hungary, in a sense. Uh, there is this very strong siege mentality and he's making use of uh, Hungarians and, and the regions and probably, in a sense, everyone's uh, feeling of being victims of 
globalization of uh, of current trends. So aside from his identity politics, some things have been going quite well economically for Hungary since he's been in power. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. That's certainly part of the explanation as well. In that sense, although um, Fidesz has been very lucky, they came into power after uh, the global economic crisis. So for now, Hungary's economy has been recovering for very many years. And of course, they also have all these uh, European Union funds to make use of. So people definitely see some kind of economic prosperity and uh, and salaries have risen. That's certainly true. Living standards have increased. And I guess to some extent, Orban is walking a tightrope here because, as you say, a lot of the prosperity in Hungary has come from these funds from the European Union. So he has to make sure that he doesn't annoy the leading European politicians too much because otherwise those funds could potentially be withdrawn, I assume, or at least life could be made a bit more difficult. Do you feel like he's walking that tightrope cleverly at the moment? So far, he has done it very cleverly. He's probably the most talented politician in the region of his time. His party, Fidesz, uh, has been a member of the EPP parliamentary group, and they have been shielding Fidesz from criticism for quite a while. But it's increasingly becoming hard for Orban to walk this tightrope, partly because he has navigated himself into this very difficult situation in which he promised a crackdown on those who disagree with him. I mean, I know there have been some things that have happened since the election, some publications of names of the journalists who are seen as the enemies of Hungary and that kind of thing. But do you think we should really be worried about the fact that he might be cracking down on opposition? I think that the next few months will kind of be decisive because um, there are two laws coming up. One is the so-called foreign agents legislation that was adopted last year. Civil society organizations, uh, on every publication that they have, they have to sign out that they are funded by foreign sources. And the other is this uh, so-called stop shore bill. Fidesz might water it down. But if it gets adopted in its current form, it can be a basis to ban essentially any non-governmental organization. So let's talk about this George Soros thing, or George Soros, as we tend to call him over here. The Hungarian-born billionaire, of course, and philanthropist who has become this hate figure for people from the far right and anti-Semites all over the world. George Soros has really loomed over this election campaign. Viktor Orban really presented him as this massive threat to Hungary. Can you explain what all of that was about? Right. So many say, um, because Orban back in 1989 received a scholarship from from Soros himself to study in Oxford. Yes. (laughs) Many say that there is a personal element to this because Soros obviously funds Central European University in Hungary, for example. And certainly he has provided funding to um, civil society organizations. But I do think that there is more to this campaign than a personal element. Like Orban has not been the first politician um, to spread these conspiracy theories. Uh, He's definitely not the first in the region either. So if you look at uh, Nikola Gruevsky from Macedonia, he also campaigned on a very harsh anti-Soros rhetoric. I think that for Orban, it's a kind of canvas to which Orban can project many things. He's this kind of perfect enemy. So there are anti-Semitic undertones, but anti-Muslim, anti-foreigner, anti-anti-everything. Quite a lot of the election posters that didn't feature George Soros featured these long lines of immigrants and this big word saying, stop. Very few of the migrants who've arrived in Europe over the last few years have even wanted to settle in Hungary. And the flow has massively gone down anyway. Why has it become such a big part of the political debate there? 
I mean, that's partly exactly the reason that these people are not there. So that, that's exactly the reason that Orban can say that this is a threat. Because people don't know migrants. These are just sort of faceless figures. Yeah, it's a bit like what we saw in some areas of Britain that don't have very high immigration at all. Uh, voting quite strongly in favour of Brexit, partly over fears over immigration. And it's funny, you should talk about that poster, Katie, with the lines of people. They've used the same photo. Yeah, 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 yeah. that was the same photo, indeed. It's a kind of fear from the unknown. Moving on to like a broader look at Central and Eastern Europe, I was wondering if you could give us like the main headlines of what your Nations in Transit report says, whether we should be worried about the region. Yes, our report focuses only on uh, Central Eastern Europe and Eurasia, um, so more to the east. But I do think otherwise we should kind of be worried about Europe as a whole. Um, so in this sense, Central Eastern Europe is not that special. Um, and it might not have to be singled out. But yes, as for the region, what we have seen is uh, is a deterioration for very many years, a decline in uh, democratic freedoms since, uh, let's say, 2004, 2005, around the EU accession process for most of these countries. Poland is the other country that we highlight in this year's report. Um, we also see some of the same worrisome trends and phenomena in other countries to a lesser extent, so in Slovakia and the Czech Republic. But we don't say that this is something that uh, cannot be changed. These are domestic trends, but the European Union and other EU countries obviously have a lot of influence over them. That was Jacob Chaki. Do follow her on Twitter at Z-E Chaki. That's C-S-A-K-Y. She's a persistent source of good tweets about Central Europe, and some of them even include cats. Oh, person after my own heart. Yeah, I actually also just started following one of her lists. Oh, yeah. Twitter lists. I don't know whether that's like become a thing, but it's actually quite <laughs> useful for a stupid person like me who doesn't know much about Central Europe and wants to know more. You're not stupid. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Anyway, we are now going to head back to Western Europe and I'm going to head down the road and have a chat with Mick. So I am here in the offices of Are We Europe with Mick in Amsterdam and Katie is over the other side of Skype as we've decided to call it and I'm sorry you're not here because we're drinking beer and eating olives. I actually have my own beer but I don't have any olives so things could be better, things could be worse. Could you start by telling our listeners what Are We Europe is? Yeah, our tagline is that we are a platform for European storytelling. We are a media collective of well, over 300 people from all over Europe. Uh, that could be writers, journalists, podcast makers, uh, photographers, filmmakers, creatives. We basically are trying to search for the European identity. Which is something that we're also looking for. So we are a match made in heaven. <laughs> so we are sitting here in front of a, an EU flag. But there is a bit of a conflict there, isn't there? Because you're not necessarily always proud of the institution of the EU. It doesn't mean you're necessarily attached to everything they're doing, are you? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, we, we decided to really like, turn it around and say, are we Europe? Because we feel that, yeah, that that's a question that has not been answered thoroughly enough in all these decades of uh, European integration. It's all been focused on political integration, economic cooperation, but the cultural dimension is always really missing from the debate, from the discourse, uh, we think. And I, I'm kind of like uh, comparing it to Facebook. You know, we've had a, lo a lot of benefits from this platform from Europe. But it's become so big and we don't really know what it is anymore and it's sort of like very difficult to steer it into one or the other direction and people are being fed up by it there should be more a debate on the underlying cultural dimension 
we feel that that is missing. So obviously we do talk about the B word and we do talk about all these political... Thank you for uh, not saying the word. <laughs> we appreciate that. We do talk about underlying political themes, but in essence it's more about what it means to be European. And it's more about this cultural dimension. Yeah. So it's a project that has storytelling at its heart. You guys tell stories from around Europe, which I think is a, a really lovely thing to do. Why don't you go ahead and tell us like your story? How did European identity become such an important thing for you personally? It wasn't for me until yeah, a few years ago. Like it's some, it's, it's just a reality. Uh, the Euro was just there. You were just able to go to Belgium or to Germany or to France. But I went to Barcelona, Catalonia in 2015 with um, some other founders of the platform before we started the platform, actually. We tried to make a documentary about the Catalan elections and we never finished it. <laughs> but what, what we did have was amazing shots and amazing interviews with people from both sides of the debate. So people who were pro-independence or against independence. And they all told us that they were pro-Europe. And that's something we felt was just missing from normal debates in between the people that we hang out with in Amsterdam or Berlin or Paris. That really triggered us to build a platform where people could tell these stories, very personal stories, about what it means for them to be European. So RE Europe has a print magazine, is that right? Yes, our first printed magazine is going to come out in April, but we've published seven online magazines over the course of 2017 on a range of different themes from confrontation and protest uh, to nostalgia and homelessness. Our latest issue in December was about food. So yeah, but we're coming out with a print magazine. We're coming out with a community-driven platform called Storytellers, European Storytellers, where everybody can build a profile and publish an article or a podcast or a, or a video and maybe get donations for it. And then we're going to host a lot of events over the coming year. I'm right in thinking you don't have specific political goals other than just promoting positive European stories or not necessarily positive stories, but a, a sense of identity. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's also the debate we have a lot within our team. Obviously, I'm pro-European. I think it's a fantastic project and we should all cherish it and not let it wither away in the coming years. But as a platform, we're really trying to accommodate to both sides. Mm -hmm. Well, both sides or to all sides, basically. And it's, it's not a, we don't have a political goal other than letting people think about Europe. Mm -hmm. Another goal that we have, and that's something that I use more and more, is that we're just trying to make Europe a bit more sexy. Because when we talk about Europe, especially when it comes to Brussels and politics, and, and if you see someone like Jean-Claude Juncker, even though he can be, he can be funny sometimes, it's just not sexy, you know? It's just not like, there's no schwung to it. There's no life yeah. to it. And we're just trying to make, you know, nice content, nice videos, good podcasts, beautiful stories, beautiful magazines, sort of have people you know, spark their interest into something as abstract as European identity. Personally, I know we're not supposed to mention the B word, but for me personally, Brexit was a really big thing in terms of like making me think about what it meant to be a European. I think if I'm honest, I barely thought about what it meant to be European before Brexit happened. And I still haven't come up with any answers, you know, like if I if I meet a Brit in a foreign country, we'll have shared cultural references, we'll have things in common to talk about. And I still think that's less true if I meet like a Slovenian in the middle of China. I'm curious to find out from you if you've come up with any answers in terms of what does it mean to be a European? Like, what can I bond with that random Slovenian person that I meet in the middle of China? That's a very good question. I mean, national identity will always be at the forefront of, of the identification processes for, for, for many people. 
But I mean, I recently gave a, a talk as well, a TED talk, and something that I said in there was that I feel more connected personally to a 20-something from Slovenia who is also pursuing like a business idea or studying than to a 70-year-old man from the Netherlands who speaks the same language, who has a completely different mindset, who has a completely different phase of their lives. So obviously it, it, it's a generational thing, but it's also a sort of globalizing phenomenon that we sort of took Europe as our boundaries, like a student from Ukraine sharing their story or a bookshop owner in Madrid or a teacher in Sweden. If we can hear their stories, we can feel these sort of like things we have in common, values and these sort of like things we share. And then we can sort of like see, okay, well, there is an overarching identity, a set of values that we could maybe distill into a European identity. But it's definitely an ongoing search and we definitely do not claim that we have gotten very far in that search yet. Katie always tells me I'm not allowed to do stories about Russia. Um, no, I don't. It's not really Europe. Yes, you do. Well, I've raised the question, <laughs> is it Europe? It's not the same thing as telling you you can't. I let you have your weird Benny Benassi thing. Oh, yeah, that's true. You did let me do the Benny Benassi thing. Do you include Russian stories? Yeah, you we, do. we've had a, we have a couple of Russian stories in our magazines so far, yeah. And from Tel Aviv. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of Americans so, writing yeah. for us. Um, it's definitely something, Europeanness, as we've called it sometimes, is definitely not something that's that, that, that's restricted to borders. confined yeah. by borders. Yeah. And uh, are there any countries where you find it's particularly easy to find people who are positive about Europe? Ukraine. We've got a lot of stories from Ukraine, especially in the first couple of issues. Like then, then it was pretty dispersed, I must say, but a lot of Eastern European stories, yeah. So it seems like, to some extent, there is uh, European identity seems to bubble up in areas where people feel kind of like a threatened minority, perhaps. I know in Scotland, uh, where there's yeah. also a big independence yeah. movement, there's also quite strong European identity there. There is a correlation there. It would make sense. Where do you see the project being in one year's time, in two years' time, in five years' time? Well, we hope that it is definitely a pan-European collective, which has outlets or like teams in, in a lot of different European places. I'm not going to say countries, different European places. And we have a variety of outlets from magazines to events to festivals to music sessions to podcasts and videos. And just anyone who wants to join, it's a very horizontal collective. And like, we just hope that it grows bigger and bigger and it will have the snowball effect. And then in a few years time, we can definitely say we truly found what it means to be European because of our community. Well, I am pretty happy already now after speaking to Mick and drinking a beer. So I don't know if we need a happy ending, but I've got one prepared. So do you want it? Yes, absolutely want a happy ending. I live your happy endings. Okay, well, it's going to start with a little test. Katie, do you remember what the European cities of culture for 2018 are? No. Sorry, that was really rude of me. Put me on the spot. Go on, tell me. Okay, well, one of them is Leovarden, which sits in the province of Friesland, uh, which is in my country of residence, the Netherlands. Nice. I don't know why I said it like an old aristocratic lady. <laughs> um, but now, one of the creative ideas in this year of cultural celebration was to create a road that sang the Frisian national anthem as cars drove over it. So it's like charmingly low-tech. And it's made up of strips of ridged asphalt. You know, the, the kind of asphalt that persuades cars to slow down because it makes a vibrating noise. Oh, yeah. They've got like different stretches of this strip. So if you're not driving too fast, then it like has a rhythm and it has pitches 
from the vibrations that like plays the national anthem using your car's material, which is genius. That's amazing. Can we play a bit of it? Yeah, let's listen to it now. It opened last Tuesday to everyone's delight. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. Well, you shouldn't because I'm lying. It wasn't to everyone's delight. The local residents started to complain immediately, saying it was driving them mad. They couldn't sleep at all. And their complaints were reasonable because it's very loud and very annoying. Um, so anyway, the, there is still a happy ending because the road was closed the next day and they are being removed. Oh, God. Happy residents. <laughs> We have had a very good week on the internet. Lots of new people joining us on Facebook and Twitter. And Dominic, we've had the first shout out that we know of on another podcast. When I went to Atlanta, I like to uh, load up my phone with podcasts for long drives. And I found a new podcast I really am enjoying and you might enjoy as well. It's called The Europeans. Um, the hosts are two British friends. One's an opera singer who lives in Amsterdam. The other's a reporter in Paris. And they just talk about all sorts of cultural, political, and lifestyle-related topics and stories that are going on across all of Europe. So it's, it's just really interesting. You might want to check it out. Thank you very much, Jen. That was Jen from Beyond the States, which is a podcast for American students thinking of studying abroad. Um, we've also been mentioned on another podcast, it seems, but we are struggling to find out which. We got a lovely iTunes review from an Australian listener called Iliana, who said, I heard about the Europeans through another podcast and have been hooked ever since. Incredible show. Cannot recommend it more highly. 10 out of 10. Isn't that lovely? It's so nice. I wonder who's been talking about us, Katie. Yeah, Ileana, let us know where you heard about us so that we can say thank you to whoever it was that sent you our way. End the suspense. We will be back again next week as usual, um, unless... Uh, something awful happens to us sorry I don't know why I said that <laughs> um, we will be back next week as usual ever the regular stable presence in this unstable world in the meantime do join the conversation on Twitter we are there at Europeans Pod, and we haven't even left Facebook yet we're not that cool even though everyone in the Netherlands was meant to do it last week at like a time together there was like a leaving Facebook party oh really you seem to have missed that memo yeah I didn't do it um, anyway, you can find us on Facebook by typing in Europeans Podcast or Summon. On Instagram, we are Europeans Podcast. And drop us an email if you hate all these social media forms. We are Europeans Podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you and all the adventures, European or otherwise, that you've been having. See you next week, Europe. Vis on la tashra. Vis lat. Mm.